Well, good morning again. This will be the last week you'll have to put up with me for a while. Pastor Mark will be back next week as uh, he's returning from his honeymoon. We're very excited to be able to see him and um, to be able to have him back and in the pulpit. We are continuing in this series. If you are new with us today, we want to welcome you, by the way. Uh, If you are new with us, we have been in a series of sermons. Uh, Big questions is what Pastor Mark called it. And sort of a subtopic to that for the last two weeks and today, uh, I've been talking about why we believe. And we are continuing that today. And Pastor Mark will be coming back and continuing that series uh, next week. And we are also looking at the worldview, a Christian worldview in all of our small groups. Just a reminder there again, Tuesday night is canceled for the Truth Project because of Halloween and Awan and all that. So don't show up on Tuesday. Today, we're going to be talking about why I believe Jesus. And I think this is an absolutely essential topic for us to to be studying and to talk about and to learn about and to grow in. Because as you know, uh, there are so many people today who just believe that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, uh, you know, a historical figure, but they, they really don't believe in him as the son of God and God himself. And maybe you've heard that statement from people. Uh, Jesus was a great moral teacher and certainly a good man, but he wasn't the son of God. And I have heard that from people so many times, and I've read it in books, and I've I've heard people talk about that, but when you read about what Jesus said about himself, you quickly come to the conclusion that that might be a problem, that a good, a, 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 a problem with that statement is that Jesus made some really, really outrageous comments about himself, uh, comments that would lead you to believe that Um, the good moral teacher comment really doesn't cover it all. Now, he was a good moral teacher. There's no doubt about that. But that's not all Jesus was. In fact, Jesus claimed to be the son of God. And Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Can you imagine? And he claimed to have the power to forgive sins. And he claimed that he would someday judge the world. And he claimed that he had power over death. All those are reasons, by the way, why he was crucified. Because they did not believe what he said about himself. And so here's the problem. A man who is merely a man and makes claims about himself, can't those kinds of claims about himself can't simply be considered a good moral teacher. Either he is delusional or he's deceptive. A man who falsely claims to be God is either a liar or a lunatic. But you cannot call him a great moral teacher. And those are exactly the words that C.S. Lewis uses in his great book, Mere Christianity. You You see, since Jesus claimed to be God... You can't wave him off as simply a good moral teacher and nothing else. Lewis goes on to say that you could call him a fool or you can call him a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. 
And then he goes on to say these words. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, when a person decides what they want to believe about Jesus, they have to choose one of three possibilities that C.S. Lewis so clearly outlines for us. Number one, he was either a liar and he intentionally deceived people into following him, or he was a lunatic, a paranoid schizophrenic with visions of grandeur, or he was in fact the son of God, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. And you've got to choose between one of the three of those options because those are the only options that are made available to us. Now, you know which one I believe. I believe that he is who he claimed to be, that he is the son of God. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom we bow down to and we worship. And I don't believe that simply because I'm a preacher, but I'm a preacher because I believe that. And I hope you believe that too. Now, there are a lot of people who question that. And we need to know an answer for that. We need, to, we need to settle the issue on why we believe in Jesus. And I know that Jesus is the son of God because when you look at all of the evidence that is, that is offered to us, you cannot reach any other verdict other than Jesus is who he said he was. And I want to share some of the reasons this morning with you why I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Number one, because Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies that have been uttered about him. For centuries and centuries, the Old Testament prophets, they began talking about the coming of the Messiah. And they preached specific things about his life. Let me give you an example of a few of them. They talked about where he would be born. For example, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler of Israel. By the way, that's Bethlehem. Ephrathah is Bethlehem. They were prophesying about him being born in Bethlehem. They prophesied about who his ancestors would be. Jeremiah 23, 5 is an example of that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. It's through the line of David that Jesus was born and he was prophesied about that. And by the way, God did that by using two incestuous daughters of Lot after they survived the, the, uh, the incident of the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember them uh, where they had this incestuous relationship with their father. One of them had a son whom she named Moab from whose ancestral line came, well, Ruth and then Boaz and eventually Jesse and then eventually King David. And it was through the line of King David that Jesus was born. Absolutely amazing. How could anybody, how could anybody think that far ahead to know that that was going to happen, except God himself. 
And it was predicted by the prophets even how he would die. Psalm chapter 22. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That was prophesied of Jesus and how he would die. The prophets also predicted certain events that would take place and how he would react to those situations and and how people would react to him. In fact, Jesus fulfills more than 60 prophecies of the Old Testament that were given about him. He fulfills every single one of them. Now I know there are some skeptical minds that come along and they say, well, what if Jesus deliberately staged those events in his life and they simply appear to be prophetic fulfillments. For example, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and I'm not going to read this, but I think I've put the verses up for you, says that the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. Well, could that have been staged? He read the prophecy. He went ahead and did that. Or what about the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that said the Messiah would come and live in Capernaum. That was kind of his home base, was Capernaum. Well, he read the prophecy, so he went to Capernaum and lived there. Well, I would say to you that he could have intentionally carried out some of these things. If he was crazy enough, he might have even tried to engineer his own crucifixion to fulfill prophecy, but really, only a few prophecies could have been fulfilled intentionally, but not very many. Let me give you an illustration of that. For example, the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, which we've read, that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, how could he have staged that? I'm going to be born in Edmonton. Okay, (laughs) how many of you staged your birth? Not very likely. Or how about the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, that says that he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. What, did he go to, you know, Judas and say, hey, ask for 30 pieces of silver and, you know, betray me? I, I doubt it. Or the prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7 that says that he would be of the line of David. How could that happen by his own doing? Or how about the prophecy of Psalm 3420 that says that his bones would not be broken on the cross? Hey guys, would you mind not breaking my legs? You know, I don't think so. Or how about Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, that says that men would gamble for his clothes? Yeah, he didn't stage that. And there are some, there are there are many other prophecies like that, that it would have been possible, be it be impossible for him to mimic. Well, there are some other skeptical minds that come along, and they might think, well, what if the writers of the Gospels they fabricated those events? to just make it look like Jesus was the Messiah. Well, I would say that if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who were the writers 
primarily about the life of Jesus had have had anything to gain by their testimonies, then I might believe that they could have been fabricating those stories. But the reality is that those guys didn't have anything to gain. They had everything to lose. In, in fact, they all became wanted men. We know that Matthew was axed to death in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged to death in Alexandria. Luke was hanged from an olive tree in Greece. John was the only one who died of natural causes after having been thrown into boiling oil. And when that didn't work, they sent him off to Patmos in exile. So I don't know. Would I have done that? Would I have like fabricated all these stories just so that I could go through that? I don't know. I don't think so. And so far, I find it very difficult to believe that these men would have embellished the truth to, to, to the extent that they personally would die. Well, you, some people say, well, okay, well, what if it was just an honest coincidence? All these things just happen by coincidence. Is that possible? Well, actually, it isn't. Mathematicians, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman, wrote about this in a book they called Science Speaks. You can still buy it. And for those of you who might be interested in, in science, this is going to really interest you. So Mr. Stoner enlisted 12 different classes that he taught of more than <clears throat> 600 college students to help, help him to calculate the probability of Jesus fulfilling simply eight different prophecies that were given about him. Only eight, not the entire 60. Let's just start with eight. Those students worked their way through all of the eight prophecies that they chose. They weighed all of the factors. They discussed all of the prophecies at length. They examined the various circumstances that might, that might indicate that men had conspired together to somehow um, fulfill these particular prophecies. And they made their estimate conservative enough that they were able to achieve unanimous agreement even among the most skeptical students. And the conclusion they came to was that the mathematical chance of one man fulfilling only eight prophecies is one in one-tenth to the 17th power. That, that figures out to 100 quadrillion. That's the chance. And that's what it looks like, by the way, to calculate. <laughs> Anybody want to try it? 100 quadrillion. Those are the chances. Now, what's the chance of him fulfilling all 60 prophecies? 10 hundred quadrillion? I don't even know if that's a number. Is it possible to think that Jesus fulfilled the Old 
Testament prophecies by mere coincidence? No, it's impossible to think that Jesus manipulated events in order to make it appear like he was fulfilling prophecy because many of those prophecies were beyond his control, like his birthplace or like his, his death and like his lineage. Let me give you one more illustration. This is important. For one man to fulfill all 60 prophecies, let's talk about all 60 of them now. Imagine that somebody, if it were probable and it's not, but imagine in your mind's eye that somebody hollowed out the center of the earth and they filled the center of the earth with dimes. Now the entire earth is filled with dimes. They would need to hollow out 10 earths and fill them with dimes to represent all of the chances associated with fulfilling 60 prophecies. Now, let's go one step further. Let's paint one of those dimes red. Now let's take a guy and blindfold him and ask him to choose the red dime. That's the probability of one man fulfilling 60 prophecies that that guy could get the red dime out of 10 earths on the first shot. It's impossible to think that the gospel writers lied about Jesus fulfilling those prophecies because all of them suffered and, and they died a great deal for believing what they believed and what they wrote about. And so I believe that Jesus is who he says that he is because Jesus has indeed fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about him. Secondly, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is because, well, he was raised from the dead. Now, let me just make something very, very clear here. When we say that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't mean that in a spiritual, metaphysical, allegorical sense. But we mean it in the most literal sense that we can mean it. We mean that his human body was dead. It was completely lifeless. His heart stopped beating. Blood ceased to run through his veins. He stopped breathing. The Bible says he gave up the ghost. He stopped breathing. He was as dead as dead can be. That's what we mean. And then, after three days of being dead in the tomb, his body began to stir. And believe it, his heart began to beat once again. His lungs filled with air. His eyes opened. And he was once again as alive as any live person could ever be. And that's what the Bible and the prophets and all of the teachers of the Bible have been teaching for 2,000 years. Now, some skeptics come along and they say, well, what if Jesus didn't really die on the cross? 
Well, in fact, that's a theory that's been passed down through the ages. It's it's called the swoon theory. It says that Jesus didn't die, but he just passed out on the cross. (laughs) He said, I'm giving up the ghost, and he passed out. It's kind of a hilarious thing. just, Just envision this with me for a minute. And then... In the coolness of the tomb, Jesus, wrapped in mummy style with all of these spices on him, woke up in the coolness of the tomb. And he got up and he, and he hobbled over to the rock that covered the tomb and with his body wrapped and being bruised and beaten and bloodied. Oh, and there was a spear thing, remember, that pierced his heart. He somehow rolled a two to 4,000 pound stone away from the door of the tomb. And he said, I'm alive. I mean, come on. What kind of moron thought about that one? Unbelievable. I don't know. It's hard for me to believe. Okay, okay. But what if the resurrection stories are really just like legends that developed years after the death of Christ? Maybe there was this gradual development over the years. Maybe it started out that he was a great teacher and he he suffered a tragic death and then the legend grew and grew that he rose from the dead and then it grew and grew that he claimed to be God and then the gospel writers put words to his mouth making those claims and the legends grew and grew until finally it just spun out of control. Maybe that's what happened. Well, there isn't any doubt that over the course of time, fairy tales have developed about historical figures. For example, St. George was a real person that it is a claim that he slew a dragon. Well, he probably never did that. But the legend that he killed a dragon actually developed centuries after he was dead. It was a legend. Same was true about Alexander the Great. There were all kinds of tales about Alexander the Great. However, they are not included in the earliest biographies of his life, which were written, by the way, 400 years after his death. Those legends developed centuries later. But in the case of Jesus, his followers affirmed from the very beginning that he died and that he rose again. In the first New Testament book written around 40 AD, 1 Thessalonians, by the way, it affirms that Jesus had been indeed risen from the dead. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 56 AD. And in it, it's interesting, he recites a creed that he had taught them when he preached there six years earlier. You see, in the ancient church, Uh, It was common for believers to memorize creeds, which were brief statements that summarized what we believe. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find one of those creeds. We find it in verses 3 to 6. And later on, 
we read, and that it appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, by the way, who could confirm the truth or they could deny the truth. They're still alive. Some have fallen asleep. You see, Christianity has always taught that Jesus was raised from the dead. It wasn't wasn't an idea that crept in over a period of years and centuries, but Christians taught that Jesus was raised from the dead at a time, by the way, when Paul says there are still people alive who could either confirm it or deny it, and nobody did. Nobody denied it, except for the Roman soldiers who lied about it, as we know. They were paid off. Go tell a story about it. But they knew. The soldiers died knowing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Okay, well then some skeptical mind will come along and say, so what if it was just a spiritual resurrection? Maybe it was just spiritual. Well, some liberal theologians actually have indeed come to that conclusion. For example, Bruce Chilton is one of those liberal theologians and he says, quote, as long as we fall, fail rather, to grasp that the resurrection was an angelic, non-material event, these accounts will continue to confound us. Really? Confound? I'm not confounded by that. I just believe it's true. John Shelby Spong, an Episcopal bishop who is a liberal theologian, writes, The miracles of physical resuscitation, the angels who roll stones away from tombs, the bodies that appear out of nothing and disappear into thin air must be dismissed for the developed legends that they are. And then Spong goes on to emphasize that he believes that Jesus was spiritually resurrected and not physically resurrected. But you see, it all comes down to this. Either you can believe in the eyewitness testimonies or you don't. It's crazy to conclude that the disciples didn't see what they said and they thought they saw. Or that after the death of Jesus, they had some existential experience that affirmed to them the reality of a transcendent Christ. And so they just made up a bunch of stories about seeing him in the flesh. That just doesn't make any sense when you read the gospel narratives. But the fact is that the disciples believed that Jesus was indeed physically raised from the dead. And that's why the empty tomb is so significant. If it had have been a spiritual resurrection, then, well, the contents of this tomb would have been completely irrelevant. But as we go back to Acts chapter 2, Luke tells the story in verses 29 to 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with us an oath to him that he would sit as the descendant on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that of all, we are witnesses of it. We saw it. We saw it happen. I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be because he was raised from the dead and he conquered death. 
And I wish I had more time to cover more of that because there are reams of material that you can find that have been written about that subject. There's one more reason why I believe in Jesus. is because of the radical transformation of his disciples. Remember that when Jesus died, he died alone. Nearly all of the disciples abandoned him except John. Well, Peter for a while, and then he betrayed him. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The rest of them deserted him, except for John. You see, they were afraid that they would be the next in line for whatever was happening to Jesus, and perhaps they themselves would be crucified. And so they ran. But then something miraculous happened to these guys. The weeks following Something changed. It changed everything for them. Suddenly, their cowardice disappeared miraculously. They became bold, courageously. They began speaking out about Jesus in all kinds of public places. And signs and wonders started following them wherever they went. And all of a sudden, this group of men who appeared to be afraid of their own shadow, they couldn't be intimidated by anyone. In fact, you could beat them and you could torture them and you could throw them into jail and they would come back out and they would keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and people could, would say, you can't talk like that anymore and they would keep talking about that and the only thing the authorities could do to shut them up was to kill them. And they did. In fact, all the disciples died because of their faith. Philip was thrown in jail and scourged and crucified in 54 AD. Matthias, remember he's the, the import. Matthias was stoned and beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified in Edessa. Peter was crucified upside down, legend tells us, in Rome during the persecutions of Nero. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified in India. Simon Zealots was crucified in 74 AD, and Doubting Thomas was killed by the thrust of a sword in Parthia. And so the question is, what drove these men to die for the name of Jesus whom they believed in? Were they co-conspirators who fabricated the stories about the resurrection and they made a blood oath with each other? You know, let's cut our hands. We're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're gonna just keep, perpetuate the lie until we die. Did they do that? My answer is that even though many people have died throughout time for really stupid reasons, you cannot convince me that these guys for, died for what they believed to be a lie. Yeah, some people have died believing that they knew the truth, even though they didn't, and they were willing to die for it. But with the disciples, it was a completely different story. If Jesus did not actually physically rise from the dead, then the disciples would have known it, and they would have known that the reports about him were false, and they would and, and, that, and that would mean that they would have all died for what they knew to be a lie. Either they saw the resurrected Christ or they didn't. And if they didn't, then they lied about seeing him and it was a lie that they knew would result in their death. 
But something happened to change the characters of these disciples after the death of Jesus. And they claimed it was an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And I believe them. There isn't any other way to account for that transformation. Now, the PS to this point is that Jesus is still radically transforming disciples today. And I'm one of them. And I know you are as well. And so as you can see, there are objective reasons to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But, you know, just to leave it at that would be to miss out on the best thing that could happen to you. It would be like if you owned a piece of property and you discovered a cave over on the backside of your property and, and, and it had some colorful rocks in it. And so you call in some geologists and they do some digging around and they confirm that those colored rocks are actually pieces of gold. And you say, imagine that. There's gold in them thar hills. <laughs> and then you go back into your living room and watch TV. And you never go back and you never dig the gold out. You just leave it there. In the very same way, to intellectually recognize that Jesus is the Son of God is the first step to becoming his follower but it isn't enough. You're not there yet. What you know in your head, you have to act upon in your heart. Paul says that you must confess with your heart and believe, confess with your mouth rather, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. And at that point, you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that already, I would invite you to do that right now as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed who you say that you are and that you invite us into a personal relationship with you. You paid for our sins. You're asking that you are allowed to just grant us that forgiveness. And so if there's somebody here who needs to respond to Jesus in that kind of way, you can just say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I confess with my mouth that you are Jesus and Lord, that you were raised from the dead. And I believe that you're living today. And I believe you died on a cross for my sin. And I invite you to come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. I receive your forgiveness. Come and live in me. Be my master and my Lord and my king. If you said a prayer like that, welcome to the family of God. We thank you, Lord, that you are a saving God. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to redeem us. Thank you for giving us evidence of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Please stand as we sing one more song for this service. <laughs>